The following is rated not safe for work. It contains strong language, adult situations, and lots and lots of spoilers. Discretion is advised. In the criminal justice system, cinematic-based offenses are considered especially heinous. The dedicated attorneys who investigate these villainous films are members of an elite squad known as the Reels of Justice. These are their stories. Order, please, order! The Reels of Justice is now in session. Judge Maynard Bangs presiding. We all rise for the Honorable Judge Bangs. Be seated. Welcome to the Reels of Justice. Today we are hearing the case of The People vs. Moonraker. The 11th entry in Eon Productions' James Bond series, and the 4th to star Roger Moore, 1979's Moonraker sends Agent 007 around the globe in search of a stolen space shuttle, ultimately shooting him into orbit, where he uncovers a plot to exterminate all life on Earth. For those of you unfamiliar with our court proceedings, we are here to determine if this film is guilty of being a bad movie. As always in this courtroom, films are to be considered excellent until proven awful, and the burden of proof lies upon the prosecution to prove beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt that this film is guilty. Mr. Big Ben Haslar, you're appearing on behalf of the prosecution. You may begin your opening statement. <clears throat> James Bond, what do you love about James Bond? I think it's the space battles and James using the force to make a shot. That's one in a million. Yes, ladies and gentlemen of the court, this movie sells out. If you look up artistic integrity in Webster's Dictionary, it is defined as the opposite of whatever the hell those Roger Moore Bond films were doing. And to be fair, uh, they, they did start that way with Live and Let Die, uh, trying to cash in with the popularity of black exploitation at the time. Um, then a little movie came, named Star Wars came out, and Eon decided, well, to hell with series cohesiveness. Strap a blaster in his hand and call him Bond Solo. Not only this... But they made the villain Jaws, a known brutal assassin, mind you, a good guy. Because a bunch of kids wrote in, apparently taken with the character, and wanted him and Bond to team up. Did the producer stop and think, could we possibly be selling out the soul of this character, betraying the very essence of what made him popular in the first place? Frack no! As long as the little tykes are happy after seeing Jaws do a 180 character alignment, after seeing the nipple-filled credits uh, after those stop rolling, they were all for it. In short, this movie has no artistic integrity, and that alone should merit a guilty verdict. I might go so far as to say all the Roger Moore Bond films as a whole deserve guilty verdicts. For those keeping score at home, this is the fifth Bond film we put on trial here. Do not make the mistake of voting them all innocent. His license to thrill needs to be put in check at some point. And Brosnan, we're gunning for you too, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Hassler. Uh, appearing on behalf of the defense is Mr. Frank Woodward. Uh, please yes. present your opening statement. Well, yes, thank you for uh, uh, having me here to defend a, a much maligned film, uh, as we will seek to prove here in these halls of justice. Moonraker, yes, the 11th entry in the Bond franchise, also one of its most successful at the box office. It, it, it was a, if, you know, if Spy Who Loved Me was Roger Moore's Goldfinger, then Moonraker is his Thunderball. And like that Connery epic, Moonraker delivers on action, fun, and spectacle. Many of the Bond veterans are back in service, 
John Barry, Ken Adams, Shirley Bassey. The film, like all the other ones in its uh, history, pioneers stunts, like the skydiving sequence that opens the film, and special effects. That Yes, in an era when Star Wars was out there winning effects, Derek Meddings and his mastery at miniature work did in-camera effects, didn't even do green screen or blue screen or any compositing. They did in-screen old school, in-camera old school effects to make space look real, and it did. Not only that, this film has stood a test of time in ways other Bond films have not. Yes, there are pop culture references. There have been pop culture references in the Bond films since Dr. No, when Sean Connery saw a stolen painting that was stolen recently from the British Museum in Dr. No's lair. There's always pop culture references in Bond. That is nothing new. In this particular case, the reason the film has become more prescient is we have people like Elon Musk and Richard Banson who have privatized space <laughs> programs, not unlike that of Hugo Drax. And in Musk's case, you know, he's still out. You know, the jury's still out on whether or not he's a real life megalomaniac. But <laughs> with all of these things, Moonraker is far, far is far unfair to call it one of the worst entries in Moore's era. If for any other reason, there are some uh, just idiosyncrasies to Roger Moore's performance that I think make his show that him his bond has humanity. And that is saying something in a film that does have him going into outer space. Thank you, Mr. Woodward. Uh, and uh, the jury's not here to determine whether Elon Musk has a pet python or a bevy of beauty that he's keeping in Amazon. I Roll my exhibits back. Yes. Uh, we don't need them. We don't need them. Well, I'm sorry, prosecution. We're You're not gonna... here to prove it, but we all know that it's true. That's this true. was a man that said the best way to colonize Mars was to uh, do some terraforming by using nuclear weapons. He is a megalomaniac in the work. Just give me the nukes, guys, and I'll take care of it. Elon Musk does sound like a Bond villain name. Uh, prosecution, you may proceed with your first exhibit. The writing in this film is lazy. Not only does it rip off Star Wars, it also rips off itself. The plot is practically beat for beat, the spy who loved me in space. It has two boat chases in it, one which is very similar to Live and Let Dies, uh, and the spy who loved me opens with Bond uh, parachuting off a snowy cliff. This one starts with him uh, parachuting out of a plane, but without a parachute. It's brilliant, you know, way to make it your own. Uh, and hey, here's a quick safety tip for you guys out there who go skydiving without parachutes, care of Moonraker. Just aim for the nearest circus tent if you can, and you'll come out with nary a scratch. Uh, <laughs> ready to roll for your next scene. Hashtag, we don't need no stinking parachutes. But anyway, onto this film's most secret case. Uh, we're flown to uh, the film's Stromberg, uh, Hugo Drax's estate. Uh, it's here that we meet the film's uh, main Bond girl, Holly Goodhead. And good lord, I mean that is pussy galore levels of high roll right there. Uh, apparently, the woman, the women in this universe are unaware that you can legally change your name. If I had her name, you would bet I'd soon be known as the artist, formerly known as Holly Goodhead. Uh, then there's Elon Musk, sorry, Hugo Drax, uh, and he tries to have Bond assassinated twice. Bond literally shoots a sniper out of a tree. I mean. Bond either flat out murdered Drax's landscaper or he has the villain dead to rights as warning the feds being all over his ass combing his estate for incriminating evidence. Uh, but no, as is typical with Bond films, we're given the flimsiest of clues to merit traveling to your next exotic location. Uh, also, please admit into evidence, baffling movie reference number one, why the hell does also Sprock Zarathustra play? Uh, but I'll let my esteemed colleague uh, rebut these points. Uh, would you well, clarify that that theme the the theme there? 
Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> okay. We get Ben to sing a lot on this show. We do. Yeah, <laughs> apparently so. I, I, I will uh, tune up my voice. Well, look, <laughs> first off, use of that, uh, the theme from 2001, as many people understand it to be, is not the only space movie reference that we have in a film that is basically the James Bond film's uh, franchise's primary entry into the science fiction realm. They do make many references. The Close Encounters as, is another one that gets a reference. Uh, this is also not unheard of because, you know, Bond has been in space or nearly been in space many times before. These were films that were coming up in the era of space exploration. So to have them make a reference to 2001, one of the key films that made space look magnificent, uh, is not so crazy. Uh, uh, objection. Would you not agree? It just like takes you out of the film to have like the trumpet play it when you're essentially doing like skeet shooting. Not if you're a man who basically has his own space uh, fleet, he would probably. And also this is a film that probably it takes obviously takes place at a time when 2001 <laughs> exists. He would have that as one of his calling cards because he takes pride in being a pioneer of orbit. Of being in orbit, yeah. he, he would take pride. <laughs> in I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sustain that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, so, and also, not to mention the fact, Bond villains are cheeky. They've always been cheeky. They've always tweaked things a little bit, which is why I don't think it's so crazy for him to be vain and to be somebody who thinks he is clever. I think that that's where Bond villains usually f- screw up. And in the case of Bond shooting the uh, guy out of the tree and like that, let's not, let's not. Everybody in the Bond films, especially by the mid-Roger Moore era, James Bond was no longer a secret agent. He was a super agent. You know, And whether or not you agree with where they went with the uh, character is really not up for debate because after the film's success, they kept on getting bigger and better, and we were going into different territory to try to mine new possibilities. That is what a series should do to maintain life. I think that uh, the problem with Bond in these films which is something they just just chose to be straight up and shine a light on it, is that everybody knows who James Bond is. That people know that when he comes in a hotel, they know who he is. They they know when he comes across him at a at a uh, at a at the uh, Venice Glass Factory, the woman sees him and recognizes him as a threat. These people know who James Bond is. As do all women, sir. As do all. As do all, as do all women. All women. Men want to be him. Women want to be with him. And it's very, very simple. And that's something that has always been true in all of the Bond films. So contrivances for a Bond film or for any kind of film of this ilk is not something that hasn't been done before. It is not something that hasn't been done since. Uh, the the Bond, As far as lazy screenwriting goes... I don't think it's any lazier than any of the other Bond entries that came before it or followed it. Some may be better, Ooh, some may be low worse. Bar, the low bar defense. <laughs> that, that is a low bar. But question from the bench uh, uh, yes, defense. Uh, what do you have to say with this, this? the plot of this film basically being a rehash of the prior film, Spy Who Loved Me? Uh, we. Uh, what do I have to say about that? Well, it is kind of revisiting in a big... But you're also dealing with a film that's primarily a sequel. This is the first time... The Bond film has ever, ever done a direct sequel in any sort. Jaws is back. Whether we wanted him back or not, whether or not it was for the kids, which, let's be honest, Moonraker is a huge entertainment. But by the time of Moonraker, uh, it was it became more of a family entertainment. Uh, it, was not, it, it was not the Connery-era Bond. 
Uh, for better or worse, it was not that. We had a new Bond. We had a new Bond for a few films now, and he was finding his feet. He founded a spy who loved me. So for them to go and make essentially a sequel to a film to judge it for having qualities of being a sequel is try is you know how how can you guilt it for being what it is? Okay, uh, uh, I'd like to hear back from the prosecution again as he uh, presents more exhibits. Okay, uh, so yeah, next we're in Venice, um, and uh, people are very quickly gunning for Bond, and we get a goat, uh, sorry, a boat chase in an MI6 gondola. I mean, I, I guess it's an MI6 chases. gondola. Uh, we didn't see Q check this equipment out to him. Uh, and then Bond uses this gondola to escape onto land, and we're treated into what is one of the worst cinema crimes. And I speak, of course, of hashtag pigeon double take. Now, this idea <laughs> is dumb on the face of it. Uh, but it's made worse by how the pigeon does the double take. Apparently, the budget was eaten up by lasers, so they literally had to rewind the tape a second and then play it forward again. <laughs> Look, okay, it's but, bad uh, enough I'm that sorry, we I, have a pigeon I, I, doing I, I, it. I have to object. I have to object. You're fighting, You're citing a film for being guilty of, of cinema trade secrets that is basically how things were done in a pre-digital age. They, they basically had to show – they could not necessarily always – uh, uh, bring in digital effects, which didn't exist at the time. They didn't have any ways to re- reverse the film cleanly. Uh, or an animatronic they, pigeon, dare I say. Animatronic, <laughs> well, well, animatronics, oh. animatronics in 1979 were still coming into their own. We had them, but they weren't, we, we weren't pioneering them. Not to mention... May the I fact. suggest that you just cut the pigeon? I mean, <laughs> what are you really gaining by having this thing? What you are gaining Cut the is, pigeon. You, are you are you trying to tell the director how to direct his film? Is one thing? Yes, to, yes, it, I am. That's what we do <laughs> here. Oh, yeah, but yeah, but that that's that's different. Are you saying that Lewis Gilbert is uh, guilty of not making the decisions that you would make, or are you guilty of saying that the decisions you make did not work? Now, it did not work for you uh, is a matter of interpretation, and I wonder whether or not we're here. You love you love film. the double taking pigeon. <laughs> I, I, I want laugh. you to hear you say, I love the double-taking pigeon. I laugh at the double-taking vision. How's that? <laughs> double-taking pigeon. All right, good enough. I All right, uh, yeah, is, is, is a matter of interpretation as well. The next baffling movie reference I'd like to put into evidence is uh, the keypad, which plays uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind when the numbers are hit. And uh, Bond really lucked out, though, because uh, if Spielberg didn't cave on this one, the backup was staying alive uh, by the Bee Gees with all the verses. Uh, Bond pockets a vial of extremely dangerous chemical uh, that the technicians had to use a friggin' robot to handle. But don't worry, I'm sure it's totes safe for you to jog along the streets of Venice uh, with it and you keep checking it to make sure that it didn't crack. A little safety tip, Bond. If you're not dead, it's probably fine. And again... (laughs) Uh, Bond uh, has Drax dead to rights as being shady and uh, worthy of at least a UN investigation. He has the vial with the super poison, but no, uh, we wouldn't have as long of a movie. Um, we got to squeeze in at least two more exotic locations, right? So we're given another flimsy clue uh, to lead us to Rio de Janeiro. Uh, another little thing that bugs me is uh, Bond um, makes a Casablanca reference when the line sh- clearly should have been, your time is up. Uh, anyway. <laughs> On to re- what is the re- reference? So fill me in there, prosecutor. What's the uh, he knocks the guy out the clock and he goes, "Play it again, Sam." As the person lands in the piano. Ah, uh, okay, oh, okay. okay. The Venice sequence. Yes, okay. Clearly, it's your time is up, right? You knock a guy through a clock. What's the reference? Your time is up. <laughs> Hickory Dickory Dock. Uh... <laughs> okay, that I'll, I'll accept that too. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll just read off uh, Rio de Janeiro here real quick. Uh, the film uh, shifts there. Uh, my interest really starts waning at this point. 
Uh, honestly, this whole sequence could have been cut and we just go off to space and the movie would have been a nice, you know, hour and 45 minutes. Uh, Bond undresses a coworker uh, that he's known for all of two minutes. Uh, and he stopped, this stops being a male fantasy of sort of a, a great guy at this point. And he starts becoming more of a sexual predator. Right, this girl I'm, didn't objection. even give a signal I have to object. that she's I have to object. Are we now fighting films that are over 20, 30 years old, guilty of not living up to today's moral standards? Bad is bad, sir. Uh, I mean, you, you can't... Uh, I mean, Bond has done far worse in, in, in the films before that. Are we going to find all the films guilty every time he was either misogynist yes. or... coming to a Reels of Justice uh, case near you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, I, I, I think it warrants bringing it up as, uh, as, as, as far as uh, contextualizing the film. So I, uh, at least entering it into evidence is fine. It'll be up to the jury to decide whether that makes it guilty. Fair enough. Um, the scenes in the city are very odd. Um, the scenes outside of the city are packed to the brim with product placement. Uh, I think we see three or four in a few seconds, even I'm surprised. I didn't see a Del Taco board in there somewhere. Uh, come to Del Taco. Our drink machine is always broken. Uh, Jaws falls for a busty barmaid to Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet, which is baffling theater reference. Number one, I guess. Uh, Bond and Goodhead are tied to stretchers uh, that Bond easily escapes, but Goodhead doesn't again, for some reason, I don't know why the stretchers were made this way to have this great little hollow frame for him to escape out. Uh, we get baffling movie reference number three and number four as Bond dresses like Clint Eastwood in the man uh, with no name while the magnificent seven theme plays. Uh, and then there's a full boat chase uh, again, that we, we already had one in this film. And then Bond follows a girl who looks like she's uh, in a cult into the bottom of a temple. Honestly, a lot of the strings are flying together at this point, and it feels like a fever dream that's incoherent. Uh, and then you realize, damn, we haven't even been to space yet. This movie feels long. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not I, I no, entirely sure how to rebut something like this. The, the, the events that the, def- uh, the prosecution is laying out they do happen in the film. Uh, the question is: is do, does it make it a bad film? And I, and I, you know, obviously, reels of justice. We decide whether or not a, f- a film is bad based on its merits and our interpretations of it. But I would venture to say that these are not all of the elements that this film has to offer. These are some of them, and maybe some of them land. Maybe the, some of them don't. But I think there are enough. Don't. I, I would say question from the bench there, defense. So uh, I think the the point is, it, is the film moving too quickly from location to location? Is it sort of jumbled or is it there a, con, a coherent uh, sort of line to follow? Uh, no, there's always some, there's always a piece of evidence. Bond is basically doing his detective work. He's, he's finding he finds a, a blueprint which uh, leads him uh, to Venice to find out where they make these pieces of glass, to find out what it's worth. He finds the vial because he's trailing people. He uh, finds out that the shipping uh, that uh, Drax has a a shipping company in Rio, which is what leads him there. Everywhere he's going, he's following a clue. Even when he goes into my favorite is the decal. It's the decals happen. Decals happen on the, (laughs) On, uh, the decals are a way for people to brand things for that belong to a company all over the place. There are shipping labels. There are decals. Stickers are not something that are so foreign to the world of shipping. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you're basically saying that there there seems to be some uh, reason or motive for him to move from place to place. 
oh, I think it's clearly there. The, the man is investigating a mystery. Why was this Moonraker uh, stolen by the man who are, who makes them? Uh, mm. And basically, let's why... let's get to that. That's my next point. <laughs> yes. Oh, good. Ah. Uh, so the writers realize that nitpicky little nerds such as yours truly would be asking, why the hell would Drax steal his own shuttle instead of rewriting the whole movie that so it's actually coherent? Uh, they give us a throwaway line that, oh, one of my shuttles had a fault in it, so I stole one that I leased out. So I guess I'm here to believe that human extinction just couldn't wait a week or two while the manufacturers uh, get new parts uh, that they can build these space shuttles with. Uh, that um, that there's absolutely no spare parts that they had like lying around to draw from. No, no, the easiest this, this solution is 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 this in the Chevy Nova where you can go get a part and then make it run again? These are space shuttles. They you can wait a, a week or so. I mean, it's not a week or so to build a space shuttle. That no, it's a, he said there was a, a faulty time. part. He said there was a faulty part in it, not the entire shuttle. Uh, but the easiest solution is to blow up a plane that both the U.S. and British government have a vested interest in, steal his own shuttle, go skeet shooting in the morning, fly off to Venice for a quick bite, uh, go through all the trouble of cleaning up his big secret lab so the U.N. wouldn't be any of the wiser uh, before blasting off in his space shuttle and wiping out all Earth from orbit anyway. <laughs> well, I think that Drax is, is basically uh, forced to go to Venice because Bond is on his trail. As for blowing up this, uh, the airliner that the shuttle was on, uh, that clearly he had planned on the wreckage being evidence enough that it was all an accident and hoped that that would buy him the time he needed to launch his plan. Uh, but if the plan was perfect, <laughs> Bond wouldn't have been able to catch him. No, no. Uh, further, uh, I'm supposed to swallow that this uh, secret space base uh, has superb uh, radar jamming technology that makes it so nobody on Earth can know that it's there, despite the fact that telescopes exist powerful enough to see the rings of Saturn. Uh, anyway, we wanted to see Bond in space. Did, I did hope it was worth it. telescopes exist in that era? This is 1979. Telescopes? telescopes yeah, absolutely. Telescopes existed. At least observatories. Those kind of optics to see that? I would say observatories, at least, yeah. I, I, I we're we'll uh, we'll have our fact checker uh, bring that up. Yes. I would think. Uh, anyway, we got our astronauts going pew, 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 pew. Jaws switches sides rather quickly uh, and shields the his seven-up maiden with his mighty bosom as they uh, hurtle to Earth. And to cap it off, uh, we have the cinematic crime of making homage to a different movie as the climax of your current movie when James shoots a poison capsule no bigger than a womp rat without a targeting computer. Damn it to hell, this movie has no artistic integrity whatsoever. It's guilty of cheating, of copying George Lucas's answers, of handling the same paper in twice, of having two damn boat chases, and uh, if you condemn Final Justice for this crime, you must condemn this movie as well. The prosecution rests. All right. All right, very good. Uh, defense, you may uh, begin uh, and present your first exhibit. Well, my first exhibit, I mean, I'm going to start with Roger Moore. Roger Moore is an actor that a lot of people are not who are fans of the franchise. He may not be their most favorite Bond, but he is the longest serving Bond. He was in seven films from Live and Let Die to A View to a Kill. Roger Moore. It's like preparing your longest serving rash. Damn. <laughs> 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 Apologies, sir. For, for the record, sir. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Prosecution, you are on thin ice. But look, at, I'll at, have at a seven up over here, Your Honor. <laughs> Sorry. Roger Moore was one of the more successful Bond actors. Whether we like him now in light of Brosnan and Dalton and, and Daniel Craig, 
that's that's a different discussion. But at the time, Roger Moore was very successful. His films made over $4 billion uh, at the box office. That's adjusted for inflation. But his films made money. People wanted to see him as Bond, especially at the time of Moonraker. So, um, you know, Roger Moore was riding high at this time. But what I like to point out about Roger Moore, which I think is very, very uh, interesting about his performances, is that this, if you are a Bond fan at all, this film is one of the first films that where Bond gets hurt. In the scene where he goes into the centrifugal chamber, which seems like a silly little uh, scene where he's basically spun around to, to the point of 12 Gs and almost dies. Uh, mm. And when he gets out of that predicament, Bond doesn't have a quip. Bond refuses help from Holly Goodhead. The man is hurt. We have not seen Bond hurt on screen for a very long time. There's a, is an aspect that I think makes this film very interesting is that we have that moment. And there are other darker moments in the film as well. Uh, the way that Drax dispatches of his uh, uh, the girl that sleeps with Bond and gives him access to the safe, letting her mm. be torn apart by Doberman, is quite a vicious way to, to uh, get rid of uh, of uh, somebody. And I think that th- these darker elements, this balance between the fun and the serious, makes it a very interesting film to be- behold. So I-, I think that them trying... They could have been just stupid, silly from the beginning and gut go, and they are stupid, silly at points. I do concede that. But they do try to make the film edgier at times. And, it's uh, it's a very yin-yang, though, isn't it? I mean, there's not a lot of in-between. It's like one side or the other. Well, I think I, I think that you have... Uh, I think they they do balance it out. If they go one way, they, they always are balancing it out with something else. Even the scene that you're talking about where he finds the uh, the poison... Yes, you have the close encounters theme, and he goes in there, but these men die horribly in front of his eyes. And he's and and Roger Moore plays it extremely well. You could see that Roger Moore takes it serious. And yes, you it's follow sort of it his with the It's his fault. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, he he left something there. And he also this is he's watching men asphyxiate in front of his eyes. This isn't just him like shooting them or throwing them off a roof or or and shotting a quip. Uh this is Bond seeing actual death in front of him and and having a reaction to it. He wasn't an automaton at this point. Uh, that is something that happens with Bond later on. Uh, this These are human elements. And uh, I think that they do balance it off with humor. Sometimes they go a little far. But I do not think that they're going too far should dis, uh, serve as a discredit, serve to discredit the... Uh, the good characterizations that they have in the performances of, Ro- of Roger Moore in this film. He was not too old yet. Not to mention the fact also in, in a, for Roger Moore as a man who a lot of people say couldn't throw a punch. The <laughs> scene where he's fighting uh, Chang in the, in the glass factory and he picks up the, the, the uh, fencing, the foil. That's the first time that Moore is really believable in his action sequences. I think he is a master of that sword. We have to remember in two Roger and a half movies, this is the first time you you buy him. Well, yeah. no, I, no, no, three, two, two and a half movies. I, I, it's the first time I think that we we bought him. Look, they've always used to say that Roger Moore. Uh, they tried to have him be cruel and be Connery in the first two films, Live and Let Die, and 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 it didn't quite work because Roger Moore was a softer personality. Nothing wrong with that. He could be more suave. That was their direction. 
But but we always, especially in these films, as the stunts got bigger and bigger and had to have more doubles for the actor, having him do believable action, I think, is very integral. And having him pick up that sword and clearly be a master swordsman, the way he handles it, the way he uses this, this is a man who's had training, uh, both as Roger Moore and as James Bond. I think these are very key very important things to show in an era where Roger Moore and, and Moonraker, I will admit, is guilty of this. Is is a, it has gone has taken it to the films to a level that's bigger than they needed it to be. Star Wars mm-hmm. is you know lasers is the province of Star Wars, but in that mm-hmm. by them going into space and doing all these crazy stuff to have a bond that has human moments and has competent moments, I think is extremely important. Prosecution, do you have any uh, uh I don't challenge that so much. I mean, I, I do think we've seen Bond have human moments in the Connery era, uh, not so much the Roger Moore era. So, uh, again, two and a half films by the time we start seeing this, uh, I don't think that that's, that's meriting it being a uh, having a pass as a good movie. Well, then let me move on to the next point. This is something we talked about with the pioneering of special effects and stunts. The opening sequence of Bond being thrown out of an airplane, you cite it as for the how they solve the problem of, of Jaws. The, pros, the, defense, the defense stipulates that Jaws is a problem for this film, no doubt. He he's, keeps on surviving things like he's Wile E. Coyote. We, we, <laughs> we stipulate that. Couldn't but, have put it better myself. Thank you. The prosecution rests <laughs> twice. <laughs> you already rested. <laughs> but uh, that sequence, up until the time he falls through the net, uh, through, through the tent, and lands in a net, by the way. It doesn't like he, he lands on the ground. Uh, but the the point is that that whole sequence pioneered a new form of stunt work, skydiving and being able to film actors in where who had parachutes that didn't portray the costumes they were wearing. That was something that hadn't been done before. The Bond films, at this, especially in this time, not so much nowadays, but definitely in this time, they were always wanting to top themselves and find new ways of doing stunts, new ways of building spectacular sets, and also, yes, visual effects and special effects. The opening sequence where they had to come up with new technologies, not just of how to have a parachute on an actor when it was supposed to look like they weren't wearing one, they also had to come up with technology of how to shoot this thing. So they had to make a special camera with special lenses because the lenses of the time were made with glass, but they found prototypes that were made of plastic so that when the cameraman deployed a shoot, the the jerk of the of pulling a shoot wouldn't crack his neck because of the weight of the camera. These were all things that they developed for Moonraker. And that opening sequence is one of the best pre-credit sequences in the Bond films. It's amazing to see. We are seeing people going, flying through the air. And it's not the greatest of ease with the greatest of ease. And that's where you get the trapeze. Yes. And none (laughs) of these people are Roger Moore. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I mean, look, you, you, obviously we have to double Roger Moore and this film does suffer from, and this is not their fault. This is just the the technology of the time. Some of the insert shots where they have to shoot the actual actors against a rear projection. Rear projection was never as believable as it is, as we have stuff now. But that's not a fault of the filmmakers. That's a fault of the technology. You can only do so much. Uh, but the opening sequence is amazing. Special effects-wise, we go into space. The way they achieve these effects is a marvel. And I think from for the art of filmmaking, 
when you decide whether or not a film has worth, you can't just uh, do it based on the script, although you, it definitely is the main thing you should be doing it on. You, and, and you also should judge a film by its believability. But you should also uh, judge it based on its, uh, adv- its, its uh, prowess as a f- piece of art. And art is not just aesthetics, it's also technology, it's also artistry. And in the case of the special effects for this film, they did not have time, they said. They didn't have the production time because they were already blowing their budget with everything else they were doing to do a lot of the uh, compositing, the optical printing that the films like Star Wars had done. So they decided to do a tried and true uh, method where they would roll the film back in the camera and expose it for each of the elements they were introducing. So the, sp- the space shuttle model, the Moonraker model, the moon, and the Earth were each exposed separately on the same piece of film. They rolled it back, and it had to be perfectly in sync. And that they film did the was same nominated. thing with the pigeon. Did the same thing with the, <laughs> they could have done the same thing with the pigeon, but that wasn't under Derek <laughs> Meddings' control. And Derek Meddings, let's 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 uh, also give him his due. This is a film that has a lot of miniatures work. A lot of very fine miniatures work. Some very there's some scenes of the Moonrakers in its uh, docking position that you, uh, on Earth before it takes off that you it looks like you're at Cape Canaveral or I'm sorry Cape Kennedy whatever you want to call it at the time. But these are spectacular practical effects that are worthy of acknowledgement and I think also worthy of lifting Moonraker above its sins for story. I, I, you know, um. Just a quick rebuttal. I mean, like John Carter is a movie that you can see all the money on the screen very, very well, uh, just as you can in this one. And I will see that the you you can see it. You can see where all the money went, uh, and it does look good. But both John Carter and this movie uh, don't have the substance to to back it up. Yeah, John Carter is definitely a, an interesting film. Uh, I'm not sure of how uh, the comparison outside of the fact that it was just another big budget. Uh, box office disappointment. The problem is Moonraker was not. Moonraker was not a box office disappointment. Moonraker made a lot of money. It made not as much as Spy Who Loved Me, but then again, you know, that's not doesn't always happen. Spy Who Loved Me was the high point of Moore's tenure. Moonraker was very successful. People and and it's to equate it to another film, which is far worse than this film, Die Another Day was a film that the <laughs> era that a lot of people I told you like we were gunning for you Brosnan you <laughs> <laughs> and I are teaming up on I, that one <laughs> yeah, yes we'll have to be, we'll, we'll be on the same side of the, uh, the the bench on this one on that one but no it, it's it, it's just like a film being bad but spending a lot of money on being uh, on the production value is is fair enough I mean all the production value and all the money you spend doesn't make up for a bad film uh, but John Carter was not only bad Artistically, it was bad at the box office. It bombed. Moonraker was not a bomb. I don't think that's a fair equivalence. Its mistake is it didn't appeal to the kids with uh, with a lovable jaws. It didn't have anybody with pigtails, I admit, but they're Martians. Uh, uh, your next point, defense. My next point is uh, is a little bit more of a um, is is more of a um, in the line of what I was talking about with it being very prescient. Um, Holly Goodhead has a problematic name. Possibly, if you don't like the if you sure. don't like the, the the thing, but she is also the beginnings of more competent Bond girls in in this in the in the series. Uh, 
Barbara Bach, I, I was taking that back. She, she continues what Barbara Bach started. But more to the point, the reason that the Holly, character of Holly Goodhead is worthy of mention is because she was a f- female astronaut at a time when there were none. Mm. Sally Ride, who was the first astronaut, she was the first astronaut in the program and, and the first uh, uh, woman in ast- into space. That didn't happen until after Moonraker came out. So uh, I think that... Did it happened because of Moonraker. Ooh. No, she entered. She entered NASA in 1978, which is when Moonraker was in production. Uh, uh, so, in the 1979, the film was released. She would not go into uh, into um, space until I believe it was 1983. Um, okay, but uh, some of the, this film, is, I think, succeeds in spite of some of its failings, and that is where a lot of my my defense of this film comes. There are a lot of fine moments in this film. There are a lot of fine performances, a lot of fine achievements, a lot of fine uh, farewells. This was the last film where Bernard Lee played M, who had played M since the beginning. He died not too long after this film was shot. This is the last time we see the beautiful work by production designer Ken Adam, who uh, was, he would never do another Bond film again after The Moonraker. And the work that he does on screen is quite stunning. Uh, this the, the set he did of the the, the uh, boardroom that turns into what will be hope what, what Drax is hoping will be the end for Bond and Goodhead uh, w- uh, underneath the jets uh, engines of the uh, Moonraker that's set simple but very beauty beautiful and elegant in how it works uh, these the the work of these men are on camera the, they they are were the ones who established Bondian tradition and those things on camera are also worth of worth worthy of mention. I think a bad film, something being called a bad film, requires it to fail on more levels than it succeeds. And in the case of Moonraker, I think it succeeds more than it fails. Very good. Um, are you resting your case? I'm resting. Uh, I uh, I am resting my case. I think we could talk about. Well, no, I, I, one <laughs> one more thing. I, I I may if you will bear with me. I, I'm going to uh, talk about one other thing that the Bond films are always known for. We all were criticizing how he goes from goes from Venice to Brazil to space and everything like that. But the the fact is, is that the Bond films were all about globetrotting as well. And this film shows us some beautiful, beautiful uh, settings. And locations were something that the Bond films promised, and this film delivers on. I think a bad film, especially a bad Bond film, has to not deliver on some of the things it's supposed to. And it delivers in the category of beautiful locations and then i rest my uh, case very good do you have any rebut to that final point prosecution uh no just cut the whole south america thing in half and then i'd call it even stevens and it would have been a nice hour and 40 minutes <laughs> <laughs> uh both uh the prosecution and defense have rested their cases uh so the attorneys will now present their closing arguments uh mr Haslar, you may begin <sighs> man this movie tasks me It tasks me, and I shall have it. I shall chase it around Drax's space station, around the Atlantis Marine Base, and round the pussies galore before I give it up. We're all one big happy courtroom here, Moonraker, my old friend. Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish best served cold? (laughs) Well, if Bond can copy Star Wars, I see no reason I can't copy Star Trek. (laughs) Mr. Woodward, you may present your closing argument. Well, I'm hoping the evidence speaks for itself in this case. You know, 1979, Bond went out of this world. It was an <laughs> intentional choice. 
uh, it was an intentional choice to take at the, as the posters promised where all the other Bond films end, this one begins. Uh, and Outer Space now belongs to 007. Well, I think it it sought out to take us into space. It sought to take Bond into space, and it did. Comparing it to Star Wars at a time when everybody was chasing after Star Wars uh, is more of an indictment of the industry at large and the fact that you had such a seismic event of Star Wars than I think you can blame any movie like Moonraker. Moonraker continued a tradition, lived up to a tradition of Bond going into space that was started in New, in New England twice, where Bond almost mm-hmm. went into space on the Spectre rocket. And it is something that, is, and, and we almost were in space for Diamonds Are Forever. So these are traditions that were already in place long before Star Wars. This film delivered on its promise of spectacular, fun entertainment. And as a result, I think it's time that we reinstate its license to thrill, as you mentioned earlier. I think this film has it. And I think it deserves to be decorated with honors. Thank you both. Uh, members of the jury, Mr. Dylan Schlender, Mr. Rob Maynard, and uh, Mr. Ryan Rocketjacker. Uh, that's somebody who hijacks rockets. Jesus. <laughs> Mr. Rocketjacker, Luis Rodriguez. You have all heard the facts concerning this case. It is now up to you to determine is, if this film is guilty of being a bad movie. The bailiff will escort you to the deliberation room to render your verdict. I didn't know Goodhead was such a weird name. My mother's maiden name was Goodhead. <laughs> well, first, before we get into the discussion, I do want to say one thing about animatronic birds. And, and whether or not they were impressive at this time, I have three words for you. Enchanted Tiki Room. Thank you. Uh, Dylan, <laughs> why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, get us started? Wait. Well, thank you, Mr. Foreman. Uh, great case. Uh, very persuasive arguments from both sides. Naturally, I'm a little disappointed that no one mentioned the novel Moonraker. It came out by Ian Fleming in 1950 because Ian Fleming actually wrote the story of Moonraker with the idea of it becoming a movie. And, uh, well, needless to say, it actually doesn't really uh, live up. The novel's uh, m- m- much more interesting, much much tighter. Well, they but, have nothing to do with each other, well, right? That, he doesn't go to space in the novel. Well, no, they still there's still a space uh, element. Only uh, Drax is a Nazi, like an ex-Nazi, because it's, it's 1950. And uh, it takes place in one week. It's Monday through Friday, and it's tied to the timing of the shuttle launch. So it's like this really neat suspense thing going through the whole time but anyway but i don't know if bond himself ends up in space if that's what you mean but it is all based around the shuttle launch but that's neither here nor there as far as the actual movie goes i was very sympathetic to ben's case you know like it is a little all over the place and you know like with bond that's part of the appeal though is the globe trotting the majesty of it but when you punctuate some of those things like with the magnificent seven theme when they're on the horses it's like yeah that's kind of like silly and fun, you know, but like, uh, I don't know. It kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So that, that's kind of, I'm kind of leaning towards Ben Ben's side of the ledger right now, though I do like Frank's points about some of the things that the movie pioneered. I mean, the movie had a tremendous budget. It actually had a budget that was bigger than all the previous Bond movies combined. And he's right, it did blow up in the box office too. It was the best uh, received Bond movie up till then. So and a lot of that had to do with the effects, which were which were really, really cool. So I, I do appreciate that. And we put a high premium spectacle 
in this courtroom. So I'm not discounting that. See, when I came in, I was kind of uh, I was kind of on the fence um, a bit, but uh, I think that the defense really really pulled me his way. Like especially mentioning all those pioneering effects. I love practical effects um, and to hear all the practical ways they could, they could solve those problems and make it look good. I mean, I think it still holds up basically. Um, You know, a lot of those effects look great, uh, great miniatures, great models. Um, And I think this gives me everything I want from a Bond movie. I mean, they, there's the globe trotting, like tons of, of different locations, Um, high speed chases. And yeah, there's two boat ones, but I mean, how many things can you have a chase in eventually, right? I mean, it's boats. It's there's a plane, I guess, that he jumps out of. Helicopter chase. Yeah, they they could have had a helicopter <laughs> chase. Uh, they did have a helicopter. They did. I yeah. know. That's why I was saying helicopter chase would have been you dope. Know, uh, you know, Holly Goodhead could fly a helicopter, seemingly. I believe. Uh, well, she had to be a good pilot if she was an astronaut. Yeah. Um, Brian, what are you thinking? Well, I think most of my issues with it are the or stemmed from me not being a big Roger Moore fan. Like I appreciate him. The like actor the or as Bond? As the, as an actor kind of, I mean, oh. but that also translates into how I perceive his bond. Like Fair. I like him in like, you know, danger man and like the sixties TV shows and stuff. But when he didn't get the job, when Connery got it, cause he was, you know, gunning for it when he didn't get it, that should have been his time to move on. Because by the time he actually started playing Bond, he was too old. And I don't say that to be ageist, and I don't say that to be to shame him or something. It's just You that are such an ageist. He is so Lots of shame. slower than he should be at all times. And he's very camp, and I'm not a big fan of the camp. I don't like this this kind of like the, this Teflon Bond. I mean, I don't like Bond in general, but I don't like Teflon Bond especially. This idea that there's, he's never really in danger. Like the defense mentioned that he, you know, that has the scene in the uh, in the centrifuge. That is kind of the exception that proves the rule. Like I don't think that that's particularly uh, an instance that happens a lot. I think that the criticism that people kind of lob at like Marvel movies, where people just make flippant comments and they're really untouchable. I think that Roger Moore is those uh, criticisms as a person. And that, I think, <laughs> it colors how I look at all of his movies. I don't think that there's a single one of his movies that I would actually call good. I think there's some that are okay, but definitely would not even tip into good. And See, for a me, lot of that is him. As far as this this critique of, like, Teflon, you can look at almost any action hero. And when they're in danger, you never really think they're in danger, right? And that's I a mean, problem. Right, but it's but it's across the board for almost every single superhero, uh, spy, action film, anyone I can think of. You know, Die Hard. You you never really think they're. But it's get also them. how they get out of the predicament too. You know, that's that's a big piece of it. It's like obviously we know James Bond's not going to die, but is he going to live just because he's James Bond, or is he going to do something clever? And in this just movie, I think he did James something Bond. pretty well. He did shoot the uh, the wrist. A dart that was luckily disabled the machine. There was no guarantee that it would, but it was a last ditch effort kind of thing. So I mean, we, stabbed, we don't want to get too far into the weeds. And he stabbed that python with his pen knife thing that is pen blade oh, that he, he stole the big from Big Snake. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. 
Uh, no, I mean, there's at least at least two scenes in every Connery movie where he actually gives a look on his face like I'm probably going to not only get my ass kicked if I don't do this right. I am dead. Oh, I, I think don't there's... ever get that idea with with Roger Moore. I think that what about when he... what about when he punches Jaws and he just hits metal like and he knows he stands no chance in that fight because it's a big goofy guy with metal teeth. Like what is and a metal dick there... apparently. Oh my god! I mean, <laughs> don't forget on. his metal well, dick. A metal the only piece thing that I that changed <laughs> in dick. terms of my opinion with this film, seeing it a second time, is uh, I hated the idea that Jaws came back the first time I saw it. I don't mind it now because mm. I basically look at Jaws as Gamera where mm. in the first movie, he's the big threat. He stomps on people, kills them, doesn't really care. And then the second movie, it's like, oh no, he's the friend of children and nobody questions it ever. <laughs> Everybody's just like, yeah, of course. I mean, that's what he was from the beginning. No, it wasn't. Kids wrote in. They really liked him. They changed it. I don't have a problem with that. Well, okay. But to Jaws doesn't just flip out of nowhere. He falls in love with a very hot blonde who apparently we're supposed to think is not that hot because she wears glasses, but she is really hot. Which and we've proven in this court is bullshit. Let's just say that make you hotter. It, right, <laughs> I agree with you. She's hotter for the glasses. I'm I'm with you there, Ryan. So he finds this beautiful uh, girl. I don't know what she was doing in in Rio. Um, yeah, she's not Brazilian. Girls in Rio. Yeah, she's not. <laughs> well, she's not Brazilian, right? Well, so, she, might, uh, she might have a Brazilian, if you know what I'm saying. Hey, if Johnny Rico's a Brazilian. Brazilian. <laughs> Jesus, Ryan. Uh, but but my point is, Jaws uh, starts getting some of the good, and that's what makes him good. He fell in love. That's what made him good. He'd never gotten laid before that, you know? So getting I, laid yeah, turned him good. that I totally am and for. I am all Right, for exactly. All and so that's what I'm saying. Jaws... Turns good for a reason. So I'm going to put in my verdict, I'm not guilty. I love this movie. The Knowing that the effects were so practical, that makes it better. Knowing that it pioneered so much, that makes it better. Uh, and pew, 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 love it. <laughs> not guilty. Uh, Dylan, how are you? Uh, you know, I'm just... The, the movie didn't grip me as much... Uh, watching it this time and uh, going on the strengths of the arguments, I'm going to vote not, I'm going to vote guilty. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to vote not innocent. <laughs> Interesting. So I have the decision. It's up vote. to you. You're putting the choice in Ryan's hands, you madman. Mm. You never know what Ryan's going to do. The rocket jacker? <laughs> that, you should have told tower. me you couldn't have thought of a better joke. I would have helped. <laughs> That's a great joke. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, it was great. Yeah. Yeah, I love it when I when I show up to these recordings and find out what my nickname is for the week. And go like, oh, fuck. Okay, we we spend a lot of time thinking of them. So what are you thinking, Ryan? Uh, okay. I mean, in the plus column, Ken Adam, my God, the greatest set designer in the history of cinema. Uh, the third act, the thing that I hated the most the first time I, I saw this, that it was the thing that I liked the most this time. Uh... And that's the third act? Yeah, I, I like all the space stuff. <laughs> it's yeah. so stupid. And I, I'm like, I'm sheltering a place with my with my family, and my mom was watching it as well, and she's like, you know, I could make better sound effects. And I'm like, you know what? You're probably right. That's okay. I'm okay with that. Uh, guilty. 
you. Ooh. Also, oh, if you fuckers say bad things about John Carter in another episode, I'm going to start slapping heads. <laughs> you can go up against Ben on uh, John Carter sometime in the future. <laughs> well, let's let's get out there and deliver that verdict to that very handsome judge. Mr. Foreman, have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. In the case of the People versus Moonraker, we find the defendant guilty of being a bad <gasps> Sons of bitches. Uh, the verdict is so rendered. I hereby sentence Moonraker to create a spin-off sequel featuring Jaws and Dolly, all about the day-to-day affairs of their happy suburban existence. Oh, Court sweet. is adjourned. Oh. <laughs> Her name's Dolly? Hello, this is Blink, and you'll miss it. Reporting from the Gabagool Gazette outside the reels of justice. Mr. Big Ben Haslar, would you care to share your thoughts on the jury's verdict? Uh, sure, Blink. Uh, this film deserves no hashtag pigeon double take. It'll leave you shaken but hardly stirred. Justice was served here today. Thank you. And thank you, Mr. Big Ben. And here comes Mr. Frank Woodward. Excuse me, could we get a yeah. word on how you feel about today's verdict? Well, I, I, ha- I have to say that uh, I think you're only guilty once. And yeah. I think that we will find this film, as, as time goes on, as people look at it for its merits... I think it will have its day in court yet again. Well, thank you very much. And that's all we have from the courthouse today. Let's go back to the studio for post-trial analysis. Charles Bronson, ladies and gentlemen, back from the dead. Nice <laughs> thank you. Oh, that was a great case. Frank, that was good. Uh, you oh, scared me a few times. I thought I might lose uh, when you were going on about the, the practical effects in the space battle. I appreciate you guys. Your guys' energy was much better than mine today. But here, here's the funny part about all this is that... Uh, this when I when we were, when I talked to Rob about doing this, um, this is usually the thing I I throw out there to start fights. That Moonraker yeah. is a good movie. <laughs> Die Hard is a Christmas movie. <laughs> oh jeez, but oh, we already settled that. Yeah, you already, already settled, settled that one. That. I, yeah, exactly. But, uh, I, but it's I, um, guilty of being a Christmas movie. Actually, I believe is our verdict. That's stupid. Correct. That's <laughs> Ryan gets so surly during these things. We got to stop Apparently doing bond so. We're going to lose so. them. <laughs> There were a lot of there were a lot of points you guys were making in your discussion that I was like, oh shit, I should have said that. Oh shit, I should have said that. And uh, I think it's more of an argument of with time, this film has gotten better. Not just because of the Elon Musk stuff, but also because we've had to suffer through Die Another Day, Quantum of Solace, Spectre. Uh, these are films that have should have learned from whatever mistakes uh, they they made in the uh, Roger Moore. Uh, not to mention, oh by the way, uh, Roger Moore. Uh, a view to a kill. Good. Look, I swear on this podcast. Octopussy. Yes. Good okay. fuck. Hey, I, I'll, def- <laughs> I'll defend Octopussy, actually. I will defend Octopussy because I personally think there's everyone. The thing about Roger Moore, he's not my favorite Bond either. I, I'm a Connery man through and through. But uh, he, he he has this ability to show promise in like his, some of these films. The moment I mentioned the centrifuge chamber in the octopusy, the scene that everybody hates is when he's running around clown makeup. But the sincerity <laughs> of him trying to tell people there's a bomb here is palpable. It's real. He's yeah. like, and, you tried doing it. <laughs> well, to be fair, the, exactly. the scene that I hate in octopusy is the entire movie. 
<laughs> Ryan just does not like James Bond. Yeah. He does not like I don't know James why Bond. we keep doing movies with and him. And Rob loves James Bond, so it balances out. I really well, do. I, and actually, I'm a big I, Bond fan. By the way, did anybody <laughs> pick up on the sound effect that they used in Alien uh, for the computer sound effects? One of the uh, wow. Nostromo sounds is in Moonraker. I don't know if you pick up oh. on it. I think there's oh, a, I didn't. There's a, li- there's a library of sounds these guys clearly like that's where they had to cheap out on. They had to go to the, like some. They didn't have a good sound effects designer like Ben Burt. They had to like go to the BBC library, which is why those pew pew pews sound really horrible. I love you know. Pew-pews. If not for Alien, Moonraker probably would have won the Oscar for best special effects. It was nominated. It was it was up there. Yeah, I mean, but it lost to Alien. Did yeah. Alien, Alien won in seventy. Yes, I didn't know that. Yeah, interesting. Wait, Wait, Ryan doesn't know. There's, there's no movie fact Ryan doesn't know. I, I didn't hear that. <laughs> I was I was reading I was reading a book just just before the jury deliberation started to make sure I had my facts right. <laughs> yeah, my problem is I don't read. Ah, uh, <laughs> if it's not in the movie, he doesn't know it. That's the problem. <laughs> oh, that is true. Uh, so Frank, what's been keeping you busy lately? What have you been up to? Uh, trying to stay alive mainly. How about you guys? Mm. Um, you know, I've I've been uh, I I'm doing rewrites on a script, uh, two scripts actually. One of them is a, sp- a spec of my own. One of them is for a film that, if all goes well, we'll be m- making uh, in the middle of this year. Uh, cool. And nice. uh, so so horror like sticking into my uh, my scary creature feature uh, roots, of course, on a lower budget, which is always challenging. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's 2021, and and you know now that we're looking down the barrel of a vaccine, I hope uh, that would be nice. Uh, and I, I, I'm trying to find it goes in your arm, not your eye. Oh shoot! <laughs> Damn it! That's why <laughs> I was wondering because I can't see it on my right eye now. That and also I'm over 75. But I'm COVID free, baby. <laughs> I'm COVID free. <laughs> So yeah, I I was lucky at the beginning of the pandemic that I had a lot of projects to keep me busy. Uh, I had a short film that was uh, uh, out out there in the world and is now also out in the world on YouTube and everything like that through through Screamfest. Um, so oh, what's I'm, it called? Plug away, my friend. Oh, I play. I, oh, I'm, I, you know I'm a horrible plugger. Uh, my film is called <laughs> uh, my short film is called Clean. It premiered uh, at Screamfest uh, last year uh, in 2020. They still had a festival. They did the drive-in thing, and that was fun. Uh, cool. and, uh, so if you go to YouTube and type in clean scream fest, you'll find the film that is out there. Uh, and I have my own little podcast called film sense, which we, uh, haven't done any new episodes for this year yet, but we're about to, uh, so you can follow us over on iTunes and what have you and look for the new episodes, hopefully coming within the month. Awesome. Oh no. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. And, uh, we always ask our guests for a suggestion of movie you think, uh, that people should see. So what's a movie you think people should check out? You know, there's a film I saw recently on Hulu, uh, which I highly recommend. It's actually it's it's, it's this is a it's an iffy one because some people don't consider filmed versions of stage plays to be films, uh, but it's a film called In and of Itself. It's on Hulu. It's it's mm-hmm. the it's a stage play that was directed by Frank Oz. Yes, that Frank Oz, Yoda and Fozzie. Nice. Uh, and the play, the play was produced by Neil Patrick Harris. It's a, it's a mag- magician, and the magician is named Derek Delgado. He he brings his magician heritage to basically do a a, a one man show about identity and how you see yourself, how other people see you, and and 
the film is magical. The film is mysterious and mesmerizing and could potentially, depending on how, how, how much of a soft heart you have, I have a little bit of one. It can make you cry. Uh, it is really something that defies explanation. And is, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is a beautiful uh, piece of storytelling. Uh, it is a beautiful piece of magic. Uh, and as and as a documentary, which is how Hulu is classifying it, uh, it's it is really really well done. Uh, good job for Mr. Oz and Mr. Delgadio. I will cool. watch that anything out. that Frank Oz does. Mm-hmm. Anything, yeah. Even when and I and it's on Hulu for you, Ryan. <laughs> it's on Hulu now. Ben, uh, what what recommendation do you got for us this week? Uh, I typically hate it when franchises go into space, you know, your Jason X and your leprechaun in space and whatever that was. Uh, one movie I do like where they took it into space and it's, it kind of keeps the, uh, level of what was going in before that is invasion of Astro monster, which is yeah. Godzilla in space, but oh, it yeah. is great. Um, check it out. It's on criterion. Criterion is their stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Astro monster is definitely one of my favorites. Uh, Dylan, what do you got for us? Well, as you know, I busted out my flawless Charles Bronson impression because Moonraker mentioned The Magnificent Seven, of which Charles Bronson was one. So I figured it would be appropriate to recommend the second best movie he did with his wife, Jill Ireland, Assassination. He plays a a Secret Service agent who has to protect the First Lady, played by Jill Ireland, and madcap action ensues. It is... It's pretty bad, but you know what? Watch it. I love those Charles Bronson movies. So this is not his second best movie. It's just his second best movie with Jill Ireland. That is correct. Okay. Understood. <laughs> You'll have to tune in next week to find out what the first is. I uh, I hope I can miss next week. Uh, Ryan, what's your recommendation for us? Uh, I usually try to choose recommendations that tie in thematically with our cases, which is why this week I am recommending 1979's Disco Godfather the fourth movie produced by and starring the late, great Rudy Ray Moore, a.k.a. Dolomite, often <laughs> regarded as the end of an era. It's one of the strangest films I've ever seen. It's often hallucinatory. It's hilarious. And boasting more deep V open chest leisure suits per minute than most films manage in two hours. God damn. Whoa. I love this movie. Uh, <laughs> the lovingly restored print from Vinegar Syndrome is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, but be like me. And buy the motherfucker. Be like Ryan. <laughs> That's your I've PSA. Always, I've always tried to be like Ryan whenever I can. Uh, and I guess it's down to me. So I'm going to recommend uh, 2000s uh, Space Cowboys. Uh, because much like Moonraker, it is a movie about men who are too old to go into space. <laughs> going into space. Uh, it it stars Clint Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, Donald Sutherland, uh, James Garner. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a team of retired astronauts who have to go up and fix a Soviet satellite. Um, and it has a tragic heartbreaking ending, uh, that will definitely scar you for, for years to come as it has me. You know, and Donald Sutherland is a very Roger Moore-esque character in that too. He's very suave. Hey, I'm yeah. very, I'm yeah. very see, happy that we did not have to see movies. Roger Moore's bare ass. <laughs> it's <laughs> one of the most underrated Clint Eastwood movies. Like not that he stars in, but that he directed really singular in Clint Eastwood because it's not based on a true story that he ended up making up. (laughs) And with that, we're all out of show for this week, but we want to thank our guest, Mr. Frank Woodward for joining us. Thank you so much, Frank. Oh, pleasure. A pleasure to be here, sirs. Yes, it was a pleasure having you and we hope to have you back uh, again very soon. 
Oh, as soon as I can and, get my uh, uh, pickup for my loss, I'll I'll come back with fire. Die another day, man. It's an easy. Yeah. It's a gimme. Oh no, so <laughs> day, you gotta go after. By God, there's another film that starts off well and just woo, baby. Wait, it starts <laughs> off well. Oh yeah, with the paragliding and the blue screen. <laughs> Good luck getting Dylan to find something with Halle Berry guilty. Uh, <laughs> He's right, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, we hope you'll all join us again soon next time as. The reels of justice keep turning. Count it. Cheers. Please follow us on Twitter at Reels of Justice, Instagram Reels of Justice, and Facebook.com slash Reels of Justice.